Katie Burke, we're coming up on our last couple of minutes. Final parting thoughts, especially for our breakline community. Others will be listening in as well, but for the women, the veterans, the people of color that we work with, parting thoughts for them as they think about the next chapter of their careers. I would just say you're doing great. I think one of the things that we, we have a woman on our team who regularly every once in a while and doesn't do it in a way that's disingenuous, every once in a while just says, just a reminder, you're doing great. And I think sometimes that can feel very vacant, but like truly take a deep breath and go like, I'm participating in a program that could change my life. And it could, by the way, change future generations' lives. And that doesn't mean that every day or every hour of it is going to be easy. And my guess is some companies will say no, some programs will say no, something won't work out. But you are already investing in yourself in a way that literally could change your life, could change the future of the workforce. And so I would just say, like, I'm cheering for you. And there are millions of people you don't even know who are cheering for you. And so if you're having a bad day, just know that you have a bunch of people in your corner. And if you're having a good day, like, Go out there and celebrate that because it is not easy to do what you're doing and just want to know I'm in your corner. How we doing out there, folks? This is your host with the most, Kenny Vaughn. I play for Team Breakline and I am so excited that we have the dynamic trio reassembled. Yes, we are back at it. What's up, everybody? It is Sophia. I play for Team Breakline. Hey, Kenny and Soap. Thank you for having me in this Breakline arena. This is Bethany Coates, CEO of Breakline. Delighted to be here. Mm, ladies, I think we should get to it because on our hands, we have just a dynamic human being, Katie Burke, Chief People Officer at HubSpot. I absolutely love this conversation. There were so many pearls of wisdom that she covered. I would just love to send around the horn and hear some thoughts here because she was dropping some dimes. Mm. Bethany, how about you? Well, this conversation lasted an hour and it felt like it was about 30 seconds. I just found her fascinating, <laughs> thoughtful, insightful, charismatic. And she made so many points that I agreed with wholeheartedly. One important thing that she said was that they have a norm at HubSpot that they will engage when it's tough. They especially want to engage when there's disagreement, when there's a big issue that's sort of the elephant in the room. Many of us, our instinct is to sort of run and hide from the tough stuff and instead they get out there and they face it. And she said, our goal isn't necessarily to agree, but it's to understand. And I think that mm. this is a really important learning and insight for our entire country right now. We're in a moment where we don't listen to each other. We're, we're sort of afraid of engaging with people who may not believe what we believe, who may not value what we value. But in neglecting to do so, we're actually limiting our own education, you know? And so I really believe that HubSpot's onto something important there. Would love for folks to listen in, and that was one piece that I've been ruminating on ever since we had the conversation with Katie. I love that you called that out, Bethany. That really is such an important inflection point for all of us to reflect on. And go Katie, really, leaving the charge there at, at HubSpot. And y'all know I was really resonating with her background. So Katie played college volleyball, 
I played college volleyball. Mm. And she kind of makes a point and she was describing like, I wasn't the best player, but she was always working hard. She was really self-aware. She was walking into practice like, I get two hours today to improve with my teammates. Mm -hmm. And what a humbling skill set. It's so incredibly influential because it makes you really empathetic to every single person's value add when you're leading from the bench, when you're leading from behind. Mm. So whether or not you're the one scoring points or taking interviews after the game, I think that that is a skill set that she has carried into leading there at HubSpot and really making sure that she is, is understanding her place and her value in the organization. And also how we can lead from many different places. You know, yeah. you don't have to be center stage spotlight on you to be a leader. There are lots Absolutely. of different ways to show up. There are lots of different ways to contribute. There are lots of different ways to inspire and motivate. Exactly. Can I brag on Katie for a second? Mm -hmm. Because this woman is excellent at her craft and what she does. Yes. Um, for those of y'all who might not know, HubSpot has consistently been rated one of the top places to work at. And I think it is because of all of the amazing work that she is doing around culture mm -hmm. and the emphasis that she places on people and their experiences. So I just wanted to give her a shout out for that because she's doing some phenomenal work one of my favorite parts of this conversation was when she took a deep dive and just gave some really poignant career advice. And one of the things that I love most is she said that if you're thinking your career doesn't make sense, it's not someone else's job to connect the dots for you. And I think it's a very empowering thought because it allows you to realize that you are the author of your own story. And you can go back and you can connect those dots in a way that's gonna provide value and, and deep meaning. There's gonna be so many nuggets for our listeners to take away as they're listening to her insights. So I don't know about you ladies, but maybe we should go ahead and give the listeners what they came here for. I got my running shoes on. Sit on over there. <laughs> Break line. Arena, let's do it. We'll see you on the other side. All right, welcome everyone. This is Bethany Coates, CEO of Breakline Education. So delighted to be joined here today by Katie Burke, Chief People Officer of HubSpot. Katie, thank you so much for being with us. Are you kidding? I'm so delighted to be here and to be with the Breakline crew. Katie, will you talk to us? Just tell us a little bit about yourself as we, as we kick off this conversation. We'd love to hear a little bit more about your background. Yes. Yeah, so as you mentioned, I'm the chief people officer at HubSpot, but I think to best understand who I am, you should know that I am the oldest of six kids oh. and that being a big sister is my favorite mm. job in the world. Love it, it explains, I think, some of my greatest strengths, which is a mm. huge sense of responsibility for others and caring and caretaking for other people. And it also may explain a little bit of my somewhat directive, sometimes straightforward style mm -hmm. and maybe sometimes thinking I know what's best for a lot of different things and people. And so all kidding aside, I love being a big sister. It's my favorite job in the world. I moved around a little bit growing up so we can talk a little bit about what it's like to be yeah. a new kid on the block. That has mm. definitely impacted my sentiment on DINB. It's one of the reasons why it's core to who I am. And I would say overall, I am someone who has had a nonlinear career path. So I'm super excited and energized mm. by people who create nonlinear career paths for other people mm -hmm. and for people who are excited about hiring for and living their potential. So very much in line with some of the great values that you and your team espouse and hopefully that folks listening can relate to. Mm. I, I love this so much. And Katie, I'm the fifth of seven kids. So <laughs> That's amazing. And I also I love that you're one of the few people who doesn't say six. My goodness. No. Seven oh, is amazing. Yeah. Seven is amazing. And 
you're right. I mean, there was such so much learning in being part of a larger family unit. And really, I think one of the foundational perspectives there from my childhood is being other focused. It's not all about you. I, it's not all about you if I could. So one of the, I jokingly suggested at one point, so during my twenties, I was in a lot of weddings and I said that at some point I was going to make a viral video that if you are in someone's wedding ever, it's not about you. And I think it's never, it's very rarely about you. Right. And I think we could all use a reminder every once in a while that you are not the center of the universe. And every once in a while, we all need that reminder. But I do think growing up in a big family, <laughs> I've never, ever, ever veered toward thinking it's all about me. <laughs> I know, it's so true. The other thing that was, that was kind of a foundational perspective from my family is that my parents were super proud of me, but really had only the lightest kind of sense of what was going on. <laughs> so I had like unconditional pride and support and love, but like not a lot of micromanaging or like helicopter parenting at all. They just had no time for that. I absolutely agree. And I think that independence was a big part of my childhood mm -hmm. as well. And so I think I got, in some ways I got the best of both worlds. My parents mm -hmm. were super, to your point, proud but also highly uninvolved in the best way possible. And mm -hmm. I think the other thing about it was they very much, if I came home and complained about a teacher, a coach, a student, they were very much, what are you going to do to fix it? How can you change your behavior? How can you change how you're mm -hmm. showing up? Mm -hmm. And I think it was largely a really, really good thing. But I have uh, funny memories of we, I played college volleyball at Bates College, mm. and people would always say, like, why don't your parents come to every game? I'm like, they've never come to every game <laughs> Ever. Like and by ever. the way, how could you possibly, with that many kids, they can't show up at all of our activities. And so I think that level of independence was good. I figured out early on how to get myself back and from different activities. Yes. And, thing. and I think that independence has been really helpful to me in my life. Totally agree. One of, the, one of the most optimistic insights that I've had from my career, I think actually started from that kind of childhood, which is you can do whatever you want at any time might be hard. You might have to put the work in. You might get some no's along the way, but it is completely under your control to change the direction of your career. And I do think growing up feeling very self-directed and very independent is part of that mindset. I absolutely agree. One of my personal mantras that is often my screensaver is you can do anything but not everything. And so mm. now I have to remind myself on a day-to-day -day basis that there's literally nothing I don't think I could possibly accomplish, but that mm. getting every single thing done in a given day is impossible. And so I try mm -hmm. and have some grace with myself along that journey. Oh, so it's so important. And you talked about volleyball. I'm a mom of girls. I have four girls. I'm 5'9". My husband is 6'4". So all these girlfriends are off the charts tall. And I am super focused on helping them understand the gift of height in their lives and they have started playing volleyball and they freaking love it katie can you talk to us about just like being a student athlete and are there lessons that you've drawn from that experience playing volleyball at that extremely competitive varsity level so uh you're nice to say that and i'm glad you asked I think oftentimes when people hear from student athletes, they hear from the star student athletes, mm. right? You mm. hear from the Dwayne Wades of the world, the people who are at the top of their game. I mm -hmm. was not that person. And mm -hmm. so what I always say to people is I started playing volleyball. I played a little bit in middle school, but I was new at a public high school. I came from a Catholic school, went mm -hmm. to a big public school. It was my first day in ninth grade. I tried out for volleyball. 
They posted the JV list. I was not on that list. And I was crying because I was brand new at the school. I was like, I was just trying to get a break here. Mm -hmm. And so through tear-soaked cheeks, I tried to, I went up to the assistant coach and I said, I'm so sorry. I didn't make the team. Is there any way I can help managing? And he was like, what are you talking about? You made the team. That just was a total (laughs) clerical error. And so I just use as an example of like, I made the team and had I not bothered, had I stormed out of the gym that day, I may Mm -hmm. never have played college volleyball. And sure Mm. enough, he was gracious. He was like, it was a total clerical error, fine. But point being, I was, in spite of that clerical error, I was never the best player on any Mm -hmm. team I played on, including my college team. Mm -hmm. What I was, was really determined, really Mm -hmm. hardworking, very Mm. self-aware of my role. So I'm 5'8", which like, you know, is tall, but not super tall. Mm -hmm. I have no ups whatsoever. So I was terrible in the front row, like truly Mm -hmm. terrible. But I got really good at defense and I had a incredibly accurate serve. And so I think Mm. self-awareness is an undervalued trait. I never Mm -hmm. walked into a gym being like, oh, wow, are you lucky I'm here? Mm -hmm. Here's your star (laughs) player. What I was best at was being a good teammate and a good Mm. leader and knowing my role. And so what my college coach would tell you is the rotation where I was serving was our strongest rotation all four Mm. years I was there. And that's because when I walk on the court, you know, you got someone dependable, you know, you got someone Mm. in in your corner, that sort of thing. And also, by the way, our best players, our hitters were in the front and they were really Mm. what mattered. Mm. And so I think knowing your role and understanding your role is important. And I also think when people talk about student athletes, they often talk about people who are stars. And Mm. I truly think that the gift of whether it's playing an instrument or playing in sports or doing any activity that you love Mm -hmm. is getting to be part of a great team, failing and learning from that failure. And then also just the mental health aspect of Mm. being able to work out. The the way I always describe it to people is when I walked into the college gym, Bates has this beautiful campus and this really old gym. And when I walked in, the sensation I would always have is I get two hours to be better today Mm. and to try and push my teammates to be better. Like what a gift that is to try and be in a room where your only goal is to try and get better and work out and have fun together and win. That to me is such a gift. And so to me, the best outcome of being a student athlete wasn't my athletic career, which no one will remember. It was all the other gifts I got along the way. Mm. And there's so many parallels between that experience as a student athlete. You could have been describing your experience as a teammate, as a leader at HubSpot, as you were describing that collegiate part of part of your experience. And I'd love for you to to bring us up to present day and talk to us about talk to us about HubSpot. What is it that the company does? And then talk to us about your role and how you really work to show up as as your best self in your role as chief people officer. Absolutely. Thanks for the question. HubSpot is a CRM company. We started out selling marketing software, but over time we've developed to a front office platform. So what that basically means is organizations, over 100,000 organizations, mostly small and medium-sized businesses, use HubSpot to organize their entire sales service and marketing operations. And so we're helping millions of organizations grow better. That's kind of core to our mission. And we're growing really fast globally. And so what I love hearing from our customers is that we're helping them grow their revenue and their reach. But we also have been known as a business, as an organization that shares a lot of content, community. We really help people. And so part of our focus on Mm -hmm. small businesses is we're not just adding another dollar to your revenue. We're really helping your team grow and your community grow and helping you grow in the right way. Mm -hmm. And so for me, 
oftentimes people will say like, never thought if thought of you as a marketing technology person or a CRM person. For me, it's about helping those entrepreneurs and companies grow mm. and really grow alongside us. And so that's mm. why I'm super excited about our mission and still remain excited about our customers to this day. Mm. I joined HubSpot nine years ago, which is kind of wild. I'm coming yeah. up on my nine year anniversary. When I joined, I joined a little bit on a whim, I would say. I, I did not have, I thought I would be at HubSpot for a year. I thought mm. it would be a stop along the way on my journey. Mm. And the reason that I joined HubSpot was the company that I worked at before, Exos, worked on human performance and athletic training was super interesting. And I loved the people I worked with there. But I was on a plane every single week. I didn't feel like mm -hmm. I lived at home and I didn't yeah. feel that same connection to the mission. I just felt like I wasn't present in my life or in my work. Mm. And so I was kind of running from a challenge versus running mm. to a problem. And oftentimes I think when you're in those situations, you got to trust your gut a bit. And my former classmate from MIT, Brad Coffey, worked at HubSpot and he basically said, this place is great. We'll figure out what you do later. Mm. And so I started on the marketing team. Uh, and since then, I've switched over to HR, which I'm sure we can talk a little bit more about. But mm -hmm. it, I think people think I had this grand vision and knew exactly what I was doing, picking a winner at HubSpot. I was lucky enough that HubSpot picked me at a time when I really mm. needed a transition and that I've just been along for the ride as a rocket ship. So since I've joined HubSpot, we went from one location to now we have 12 locations around the world globally. We've gone from 450 employees to over 5,000 employees. Hmm. And so we've had an incredible growth journey. But what I'm most proud of is that we've done that by building a truly winning and empathetic culture. And so we've yeah. won a bunch of awards for that culture. But it's not about the awards to me. It's about the day-to-day -day experience of building mm. a place where people are proud to work. Mm -hmm. It's funny that you use the word empathy because that's the word that I was thinking of as you described HubSpot and your role at HubSpot. And I was wondering one of the one of the one of the um, points that you made earlier in this conversation was the fact that you moved around a lot as a kid and that actually influenced your interest in DIMB. And I'd love for you to talk about that part of your your childhood as well and and how that influenced your sense of empathy, both for your customers, but also in terms of building a team and, and where we should be drawing from to build that team, what it, what it should look like and feel like. Absolutely. When I was six, we moved to Vancouver, Canada, which now doesn't mm. sound so exotic. Um, but at the time, you know, pre-internet, uh, pre-email, moving to another country and to the other side mm. of another country, Boston felt pretty pretty big to our family. Mm -hmm. And one of the coolest parts of Vancouver, which I'm sure you know, is that it's a super international city. And so mm -hmm. I moved there with not really knowing what to expect. But my first day of grade one, as they say in Canada, everyone else's lunch. So I was fortunate enough to have a ton of Filipino and Japanese classmates. Mm. And everyone's lunch had seaweed or sushi or some other amazing Asian delicacy in it. And I had a good old like PB&J and I came mm. home and I was like, uh, we, we got a problem here. And my parents were like, ask questions. How cool is that? Ask people, like, tell me what's in your lunch. Tell me how your parents. And so it was a super cool reminder of two things. One, just being new is so hard. I was a pretty mm. extroverted, confident kid. It's still so hard that feeling mm. before you cross the threshold being like, mm -hmm. I hope people like me. I hope I'm okay at this. Everyone can relate to this because we've all mm. been at some point. And then I mm. also just think 
what happens when you experience difference? How do you take that in and how do you get curious about it versus judgmental? And so I think I was really lucky to have that experience so early. And it made me both willing to work through the awkwardness that comes along with being the new kid, but also super empathetic to people who are the new kids. So my mom had one rule in our house, or well, two when we were going to school. One is raise your hand if you know the answer. She wanted to raise confident kids who said, I know what's up. But number two, which was way more important, was no one eats lunch alone. And so the big rule in our household was just if you ever came in and said, you know, oh, well, I did this and I was sitting with all my friends and this person Mm. was sitting by themselves, Mm. that was the biggest trouble you could get in. Not a grade, Mm. not anything. It was leaving someone alone and not Mm. demonstrating empathy to them. And so I would say that's something that was really highly prioritized in my household growing up and certainly that being new helped me navigate. And so I think when it comes to the DEI work we do at HubSpot now, I don't claim to know all the answers. I'm still a student. I'm still learning and growing. But where I try and start every conversation is just with, okay, let me put myself in the shoes of the person who's talking to me or feeling excluded, or just if people are new at HubSpot. Anyone who's new, regardless of your background or where you're coming from, feels that same awkwardness. And so our job is to make sure we're giving them the empathy, support, and space they need to succeed and grow. And I think my life experience has helped me grant people that. Mm, I love that. I love that so much. Just being aware of other people. We talked about this a little bit, but but I think sometimes there's a, an epidemic of always being the star of your own show, you know, and just kind of being aware that other people are experiencing the same situation differently. And how do we engage every, every single person in the room and get other people to join us at the table? Yes. Uh, we had, so this week at HubSpot, we had a seminar with our Black Advisory Group. And one of the women on the panel said, how do other people experience you? And what's the shadow hmm. that you cast hmm. when you're in the room with others? And I thought it was just such a good reminder that the very things that I do that some people may experience as like wonderful and energizing could feel exclusive or provocative or insulting to others. And I think just being aware enough to know the difference between intent versus impact Mm. is so important and critical. And Mm. it's something all of us are evolving on and certainly something I need to continue to improve. But I do think just taking the personal out of it and really being willing to question yourself and how you show up is super valuable. Mm-hmm. You wrote this great article for Inc. And it was about the, the seven phrases every leader should say. And I really loved this. One of the questions that you ask is, what do you see that I don't see? And another one is, I'm sorry. You know, And both of those are really drawn from a foundation of empathy. But could you talk to us? I know that those actually weren't the two phrases that that you picked out as your favorite, but those were the two that jumped out at me. Can you talk to us about why you felt that they should be included in that top list of leadership commentary? Yeah, let's start with I'm sorry. I think it's one of the hardest things Mm. to say and also to say it and just leave it. So I think there's Mm -hmm. a tendency to go, I'm sorry, but that's not what I meant. And I think just Mm. saying I'm sorry and really owning it is so important and so hard. Mm -hmm. I think part of the reason I didn't list it as my favorite is I'm an achiever. I like doing things well. And sometimes it can be hard for me to say, but I said it to my team this morning because I messed something up Mm. this week. 
And so I think it's just important to include it because I do think the best leaders that I admire do it and do it well. And I think if anything, I could do it more often. That list, I think, is as much a reminder for me as it is for other people sometimes. And to your first question, what do you see that I don't has actually become a really powerful exercise within our team. So Mm -hmm. next week, we basically every, it's usually every quarter for my leadership team, my extended leadership team meeting, we literally all get in a room and I barely talk. I just ask questions, but it allows anyone the autonomy to bring something forward that might otherwise get missed in a traditional agenda. And Mm -hmm. I think that does a few things. It helps as we grow globally to make sure that we're not not missing important regional pockets of information because many of our leaders are located in the U.S. Mm -hmm. It ensures that my own bias and what I digest and respond to is not front and center and what gets put on the agenda to begin with. Three, it creates a floor. I think sometimes you can say people are invited to the dance or that they can speak up about something. It requires effort to create true psych safety so that people feel comfortable bringing those things forward. And so creating intentionality in our team about it has made a big difference. And I will say, I come by that need to do that quite honestly. I am very much an activator. I like to move things fast. I like a a strong pace on things. And so part of what that exercise forces me to do is slow down and listen. And I've found it to be incredibly illustrative, really illuminating. And it's changed the course of some things we've done as a team as we Mm -hmm. grow. Mm -hmm. Thank you for sharing that. HubSpot has been um, receiving a bunch of different awards, as, as you alluded to early in the conversation. A lot of really wonderful accolades around the employee experience at the company. So related to work-life balance and mental health, can you talk to us a little bit about some of the the work that you all have done to create an environment that is sustainable and positive for the folks who are working within it? Yeah, I think I appreciate that. It feels, it looks from the outside so easy. And I think on Mm. the inside, it feels uh, much harder. The truth is my team views our purview as product managers for our employee and candidate Mm. experience. And I think that outlook means that your job is not to protect the product at all costs. Your job is to listen to customers. Where is it working? Where is it not? You have bad weeks. You have good weeks. And so I would say if we had a superpower as a company, as far as employee experience goes, it's really about listening and Mm. responding to employee feedback. And so I think if you look at most organizations and where the culture goes wrong, it's often because they miss important messages from their employees around what matters. And I think Mm. the thing that uh, I'm proud that my team does really well is listens for gaps in where Mm. what we say versus what we do don't match up. And then we work really hard to correct those. And I think it's important to acknowledge that doesn't mean our culture is perfect. Mm. It also doesn't mean we do everything well all the time. And what it does mean is that when we mess something up, we work really hard to get it right. Or that on things we're not prioritizing, we try and give people a really good reason why that is. Mm-hmm. And so I think the key ingredient there really does come back to empathy. And it comes back to having a team, which I'm lucky enough to work with every day on people operations, that is really good at listening and at acting on that feedback versus at most organizations that feedback goes into kind of a black box and you never hear about it again. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And what do you say to to critics who, who might say something like, I'm just thinking about sort of the, the like critique of Silicon Valley based startups, which is like work your, like grind it out. You know, you're like in pursuit of building a big company growth at all costs. 
and thinking less about the toll that that might take on employees and actually using it as a badge of honor. The, the all-nighters or the, the number of times that they've missed kids' soccer games or all these, these sort of indicators that you're spending your entire life at work. What do you, what do you say to them in terms of what you see at HubSpot, which seems to be at a really interesting intersection? You talked to us about the growth between 450 employees to 5,000 employees in, in your eight years at the company. What do you say to people who, who view that as a trade-off between employee experience and, and growth or success as a business? Yeah, so we have a great slide in our culture code that says we want people to build their work around their life, not the other way around. Mm -hmm. And so we believe that the traditional model of, to your point, hustle culture, glorifying working all-nighters is broken. With mm -hmm. that said, I think it's important to acknowledge that like so many companies, we are growing really fast. As you mentioned, even mm -hmm. before the pandemic, we were growing fast. And then growing fast in a pandemic brings its own set of challenges mm -hmm. and complications and the blurring mm -hmm. of work and life. Mm -hmm. And so I think where I would come to this is with a degree of honestly acknowledging that we've missed the mark and that there are HubSpot employees who feel like they're still burnt out or still mm -hmm. feel like it's hard to separate life and work. Mm -hmm. I think what we've done well is be responsive to that feedback and make mm -hmm. it clear that we're investing. So as an example, um, we, during the first few weeks of the pandemic, we invested a bunch in programming for families. So we were acutely mm -hmm. aware right off the bat that caregiving was going to be a challenge. We organized concerts for kids. We organized online learning workshops for people who uh, had kids who weren't in school. We did a bunch of workshops specific to our parents' community to help them learn together. Mm. And as we did those, we realized there were other groups that needed our help and support too. So there were people who were caregiving for elders. Mm. It was a huge challenge before meetings went online. Folks who were suffering with addiction and often rely on support groups, that was a group that needed extra help and attention on that side of things. And so I think just generally creating space to talk about mental health topics or topics that yeah. otherwise have been not included in the work conversation has been important. And then I would just say it's about listening to one of our expressions at HubSpot is finishing the swing. Mm. And so oftentimes we'll start something and we'll go, okay, we've done a lot, so we should be good. I would say that happened to me in the spring. I was like, okay, we've invested a lot here. We've done a decent job. And the reality is we thought things were going to get better this year. We thought they were mm. going to be less ambiguous. We thought the vaccine rollout was going to be like, boom, we're done. Mm. We're in a good spot. Mm -hmm. And if anything, I would say the ambiguity has been more stressful for mm -hmm. so many people. Yeah. And this year has been harder for so many yeah. people. And so I think part of it is not celebrating. So not going like, yeah, we nailed it because we did all these things and instead yeah. go, okay, Let's be proud that we did them and then also realize where they're still missing the mark. And so mm. a few things we're working on now. So I'm super excited and proud. So we announced this late this summer that we have a new CEO and Yamni is a woman of color, immigrant to the U.S. She's absolutely incredible and doing amazing work. And I think it's so cool that in her first act as CEO, she announced a plan to meaningfully address burnout. And so I think mm. you need look no further than her first act as CEO mm. to see how much we care about this and how much we take it seriously. And so I think yeah. the end goal exactly, as you said, Bethany, is that at the end of the day, yes, people at HubSpot work hard and mm they absolutely have to work hard to help us meet our growth goals. Mm. But I never, ever, ever want anyone using it as a badge of honor 
people shouldn't have to miss their kids' soccer games. They shouldn't have to miss big life events. They shouldn't have to be able to choose between taking care of their families and taking care of work. Mm -hmm. And I think and hope that long-term those will be false choices that people have to make and that that workforce won't require it. And so our goal Mm -hmm. at HubSpot is to make sure people don't feel like they have to make those trade-offs. I love that so much. And we were talking, Katie, before we went live with the conversation about Breaklines work, which focuses on women, people of color, and veterans, and enabling folks from those communities to transition into the tech sector. But you can imagine that some degree of our work is sensitive, and sometimes it is charged. And one of the things that we say internally is, if it's hard, that's an indication that you need to talk about it. But I'm struck by how unusual that is, actually. Like, it it does seem to me sometimes in, in this country that when it's charged, we have a tendency to run away or like avoid it. (laughs) Even if it's literally the elephant in the room sucking all the energy out of the room, all the oxygen out of the room, we kind of try to hide from it. Thoughts from you on really how to encourage the conversation, even if it's scary, you know, even if you feel like you're taking a leap, taking a risk to, to, to get there. I think you're on to something and I do think people avoid it. I think one thing I always remind myself when I'm going into a hard conversation is our job is not to agree. Mm. So if we have tension or something that is really hard to talk about, 90% of things you and I don't actually have to agree when we leave Mm -hmm. the meeting. But Mm -hmm. not talking about it is just extending the awkwardness. It's creating a lack of psychological safety. Mm. And by the way, it's making you feel emotional stress that you don't need. And by the way, I'm probably dancing around it, spending a bunch of energy trying to dodge that. Mm -hmm. And so for me, one of the things we try and do is give people tools to have difficult conversations, but the goal being understanding, not agreement. So I think if you look at so much of what's dividing our country right now, it's we're talking past each other completely or we're not talking at all because of the assumption of difference. And one of the things I really try and push our team on is let's talk about hard things. You don't Mm. have to. So even as a basic example, if a manager and employee disagree, they don't actually have to agree on everything that happened, but Mm -hmm. talking about here's why someone may have shown up this way. Here's what a path forward that feels fair or inclusive for people could look like. I think so much of how we operate successfully human as humans is in the gray. Mm-hmm. And I think we just need to teach people to be more comfortable navigating and speaking yeah. and listening in the gray. Mm-hmm. I totally agree. When you said we, we give people tools, what are some of those tools? Like, could, could you share an example or two with our listeners? Absolutely. So a few things we try and do is model the behavior. So as an Mm. example, internally, whenever we have a challenging or charged issue, oftentimes I'll do a loom and that's a tool that basically uses video to get the word out on something. And part of the reason behind that is just so people can see that even with the most contentious question they're asking me, I'm answering it with a smile. I appreciate their question and I'm going to get them an answer, even if it's not what they like on that front. So part of it is just picking your mode of communication mm-hmm. and embracing hard questions. Mm-hmm. But the second thing is our HRBP team, I think, does a really good job. We literally have a toolkit for navigating tough conversations. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. we teach and remind people. So we have a program that is called our Uplift Initiative, and it's essentially stay interviews for BIPOC managers and up at HubSpot. And I Mm -hmm. loved it because my team had everyone sit through an active listening training. And of course, every one of us has been through an active listening training. Mm -hmm. It never gets old. And the reminders, even though they're basics, are never old. And so just doing those trainings for people to go, okay, 
when you show up, make sure you're actively listening. Make sure you're not distracted. Make sure you're not on your phone. If you're having an emotional conversation with someone and they're spilling their guts to you and you're texting, you can imagine how that feels. And so I don't think our recipe is anything groundbreaking or innovative, but reminding people of the basics and actually helping them get into that frame of mind, I think helps navigate the conversations more productively. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I love that. That's, that's great training. You, I want to bring it to the topic of women and it, you're, you're in a leadership position. You mentioned the CEO at HubSpot as a woman as well. You've talked about encouraging women to take micro risks, like just practicing asking for something, asking for the speaking opportunity, asking to meet with someone who might feel like a bit of a stretch. And you've said that the ask itself is a huge victory. Could you talk a little bit about that sentiment? Yeah, I think so. When I was growing up in the workforce, there was very much a sentiment in research that men take more risks and women don't take risks. And I think that becomes a self-perpetuating philosophy, right? It just mm-hmm. becomes, okay, well, if I'm not going to take risks. And the other thing about it is like, I'm not, I'm a pretty cautious person, typical oldest child. I'm very confident, but I like calculated risks. Mm-hmm. And so if someone describes someone as like an entrepreneur or an executive at a tech company as risk-taking, I'm like, a medium-ish on that spectrum side of things. So I don't really identify with it. And so what I try and do with a lot of women that I work with or that work at HubSpot is just encourage them to take the gravity of it out. So Mm. you don't have to be risk-taking by quitting your job and betting the farm on starting a company. A risk could just be, as you said, asking for a speaking opportunity, asking for promotion, asking for a raise. And I think sometimes as women, we get so wed to the outcome. So it's very much, it's only a success if I ask and get what I want. And I think instead it's about being comfortable asking and getting rejected for things that don't work out and going at it again. And so I like personally the concept of micro risk because it reminds me to keep pushing myself myself and others to get better. But I also think it feels relatable to anyone who, for whom risk can be intimidating to put yourself out there in small ways versus standing at the top of the diving board, overthinking it and not jumping in. I love that perspective. It reminds me of earlier in my career. I spent nine years at, at Stanford Business School and wound up as an assistant dean overseeing social impact education globally. But earlier in that stint, I had pitched the dean on being his chief of staff. And then this is somebody I'd worked with for years. I like, you know, really laid out my rationale and all my points and everything kind of like presented it to him with a lot of energy. And he looked at me and said, no. And it was actually this really formative experience for me because I didn't fold. I actually found a workaround that addressed some of his question marks, which had much more to do with budget than they did with me and my fit for the role. And ultimately he hired me into the role. But I remember the I remember that experience of the no and actually experiencing it and finding myself still standing and then just engaging in a problem solving exercise, it was a real confidence booster for me. I'm really glad I had that now. I think what you just said is such an important example for so many people, because I think sometimes people will think you ask for a thing, it doesn't work out and that's the end. To me, it's Mm -hmm. just the beginning because Mm -hmm. you've now developed a muscle where you go, I'm still here, I'm still breathing, I'm still standing, I still got an awesome job. 
And you know what? I'm doing great and making progress. And I think that resilience is so important. And I think we have to celebrate sometimes those no's because they're yes. often getting us closer to a yes that we just don't know is right around the corner. Yeah. Interestingly enough, similar to your example, the concept of micro risk is really near and dear to my heart because mm. when I was when I got to HubSpot, one of the things they did was they did these big company meetings and they would answer questions. But there was no human element to them. It felt like mm-hmm. the, que- the questions were getting asked to the founders. They were sort of put in a box. And oftentimes, if they didn't answer it, no one really pushed them on it. It just felt mm-hmm. very impersonal. And so I suggested on the company wiki that someone should ask the questions. And I got so nervous, actually, that it was a bad suggestion that I took it down, which is mm-hmm. maybe not the best example. But our CEO at the time, our founder, said, why did you erase that? I actually think it's a good idea. Why didn't you try that? And so I started grabbing the mic for our company meetings and saying like, Mm. okay, I'm going to ask these questions of people when I worked in marketing. And that was how people started to associate me with our culture. That was the Mm -hmm. only reason I got tapped on the shoulder for the cultural role, which then led to a career in people operations. Mm -hmm. So a little tiny risk in putting yourself out there can fundamentally change the trajectory of your career. I didn't ask for anything big. I asked Mm -hmm. for something that I really thought would help the company and our organizations and make our meetings better. And Mm -hmm. it was the start of big things ahead. And to your Mm -hmm. point, I've also learned a lot from things I've asked for and not gotten, Mm -hmm. but every single one of them has taught me that when I ask for those things, I still get to get on these podcasts, have a great conversation with you today, get to go for a run tomorrow morning. And Mm -hmm. you know what? I'm still standing. And I think it's just a good reminder that resilience is built in bucket, in little drops. And oftentimes feels like it's in buckets for other people, but it's really built in drops. Mm -hmm. I totally agree with that. And I, I love that example. And the, the, the impulse that you had to take that question down, we at Breakline would describe that impulse as imposter syndrome you know, like, who are you to have a suggestion and to like put it out there publicly? Has imposter syndrome been a companion to you throughout your career? And if so, how do you address it? How do you contain it? How do you manage it? It has. So I had this super interesting experience with my team where I talked about how imposter syndrome was showing up for me a few years ago. It was certainly a factor in me taking down my comment and then putting it back up. But it also still persists now. And Mm -hmm. I had this great conversation with people on our team where they said, I thought imposter syndrome goes away. Like I just thought it was a thing that once you reach a certain level, you get rid of that sort of thing. And so I have a, I would say I have a mixed relationship with imposter syndrome. Mm -hmm. One, I've certainly experienced it deeply and I acknowledge it as a huge part of the experience for so many underrepresented and untapped groups. Mm -hmm. And at the same time, I also think sometimes we talk so much about it Mm -hmm. that it can become a blocker confidence-wise or it can start to get in people's heads. So a good example, I had a really good conversation with a woman who's a strong leader on our engineering team. And one of the things she said is, if we talk so much about the horrors of being a female engineer, people are smart. They're not going to want to enter the workforce. They're not going to be excited or energized. Mm. And so part of what I try and do when I talk about imposter syndrome, that's part of why I like the micro-risk comment is like, it acknowledges imposter syndrome as something that is part of our everyday existence and at the same time gives someone an actionable strategy to try and move forward with it versus sitting in it and using it as a crutch to not keep pushing. Yes, I totally agree. I really like looking at imposter syndrome because it is, it's a universal human experience, which I think also sort of diffuses the power. I think part of the power it has over us is when, when we feel isolated and alone with it as a major voice in our head. One little tactic that our breakliner uh, used, I won't name him here, but if he hears this, he'll know it's him. 
he named his imposter syndrome Jake. <laughs> like he gave him a persona, you know, so that he could that talk is to genius. Jake. Yeah, and tell Jake to back off, you know, back it up, Jake. Please tell Jake's uh, partner, inventor, creator <laughs> that he is a genius because that is yes. so smart and so wonderful. And I think more people should do it because it becomes so much easier to face something that you can name. So go Jake's counterpart yes. that we won't name here. <laughs> and send me a note if you are willing to reveal your identity so I can say good job because that is will awesome. Will do. Will do. So you talked earlier in the conversation about having a nonlinear career path. And of course, within our community, that's true for many of the folks that, that we work with. And I like to remind them it's under your control. You can do whatever you want at any time. It will take work. It will take resilience. It will take grit, but it's under your control. And I also like to remind them that careers make sense only in hindsight for most of us or for many of us. But I'd love to hear more of your thoughts around this nonlinear career path and actually how that was an advantage for you, how that has really benefited you in, in, your, in your tenure and in your experience at HubSpot. Yeah, so I think it was a huge advantage. I really believe in that. And to your point, I really do believe my career only makes sense in hindsight. So I don't think anyone would have drawn it up that way. Mm. But a few ways in which my non-traditional background is helpful. Um, first, I thought I was going to go to law school. I had every plan to go to law school. And my goal, I've actually only ever wanted to be one person since I was little, which is Marion Wright Edelman. She was the first mm -hmm. black woman who was admitted to the bar in Mississippi. She founded the National Children's Defense Fund. And she was just like the person who I was like, if I could have any impact on humanity like her, she would be my person. Mm -hmm. And so I was like, success is checking boxes. You get straight A's. You are a volunteer. You are a student athlete. You are a co-president. You check boxes. Success is inputs and outputs. And so I checked every box, often to the point of my own happiness or work-life balance, work-life balance in college, any sort of balance in college, and didn't get into law school because it turns out, A, I would be a terrible lawyer, and B, I'm not great at any sort of logic-based standardized test. Mm -hmm. And to me, that just felt like the tragedy of a lifetime. And instead, mm -hmm. what it was doing was opening up so many doors for me because I would have been a horrendous attorney but also because it wasn't what was meant for me. Mm -hmm. And it ended up, because I wanted to be like the amazing Miss Edelman, I got certified to teach middle school. And mm -hmm. so I was doing that because I thought I would do education policy and they would converge at some point. But teaching in a classroom in Lewiston, Maine, near Bates, when there was a huge influx of Somali Americans who came and who were trying to navigate going to school in an American environment, American teachers trying to figure out how best to navigate that experience. I got a front row seat to a master class mm -hmm. in diversity inclusion work that I didn't know I needed, wanted, or was signing up for in the best way possible. And it's been so helpful to me. And that experience led me to end up working at the Department of Homeland Security, doing some school safety work. Turns out a lot of those initiatives were about security planning. We did a lot of scenario planning Guess what? That turned out to be super helpful for COVID-19 response, mm -hmm. running day-to-day -day war room on that front. And again, did I think I would ever come back to it? Absolutely not. Uh, and then that led to doing crisis work for a bunch of different companies. And so that helped me with urgency and clarity of communications and kind of having a learning approach of what's actually going on and reading people. And so I would just say, if you are a breakliner who's thinking my career doesn't make sense, I have a few pieces of advice based on my experience. One is it's not someone else's job to connect the dots 
for you. Mm. And so oftentimes people are like, so-and-so doesn't understand how these connect. And I'm like, well, you're not helping them. And so on a resume or a cover letter, I always suggest that people connect. If you have experience working in retail, so as an example, I worked selling jeans at the Express. I really do think that helped me get comfortable getting to getting no's, getting shut down by people, having to be warm and build rapport with people earlier. But don't expect someone to know or intuit that if they haven't had that same experience. And so in your cover letter, make it clear how your experience, which is unique and wonderful and brilliant, connects to the job that you want. The other thing that I recommend to people is don't try relates to like you can do anything but not everything. If you say I'm up for doing anything at your organization, it actually narrows the possibilities ahead of you because it's really hard for human beings to figure out where you would best add value. Mm. And so I actually think people do themselves a service to be more specific in what they like, what gives them energy. You don't have to have all the answers, but don't say I'll do anything. Instead Mm -hmm. say I gravitate towards more customer facing roles and that's where I think I would really shine. With regard to your specific organization, I'm not sure where I could best add value you, but that's kind of mm-hmm. roughly where I get my energy side of things. Um, and then the third I would just say is do your, do your homework. So one of the things I've always done is not relied on other people to do the prep work. So as an example, yeah. if I'm doing a one-on-one call that's information seeking, I try and look people up before. I try and take notes. I have thoughtful questions ready in a notebook and they don't have to be the perfect questions. But if you take the time out of your day to meet with me, I'm going to make sure I do my homework before. And so I mm-hmm. think if you have a non-traditional career, first of all, yay, go you. I'm cheering mm-hmm. you on from the sidelines. But B, it's not easy to do. You have to be willing to do the work. Mm-hmm. And similarly, I would say employers like me need to be open to those amazing people and hire and celebrate and promote those amazing people. But if you are a candidate, those are a few pieces of advice that I found have been useful for me navigating a non-linear path. I I love this advice and I think it's so important and I'm really glad that you brought it down to the tactical level in part because we see this from from the other side. So with our veterans, for example, one of the cultural attributes that they often bring to an opportunity is put me in coach, I'll do anything. And so you're like, they're literally coming from a culture of whatever it takes, put me on that thing. And you're saying actually from this side of the equation, that's not as helpful as you sort of advising and guiding me on where the best fit may be for you within the company. So just like your ability to bridge that cultural divide, this is really partly a translation gap that we're, we're filling together, I think is so important. The translation gap is so important. And just to use the veterans example, Mm. if you are someone so often, we've had a few uh, folks interview with us who have been veterans and oftentimes will say, okay, tell me, help me understand your day-to-day work. Mm. And so they'll say, well, actually I was assembling or disassembling jets or I Mm -hmm. was assembling or disassembling or I was running these extras and I'm like, or I was managing a huge team of people. And I'm like, but that's not reflected. And Mm. oftentimes they'll say, well, how could you not know what this level and this army to, I'm like, because I'm not living it every day. So just help mm. me understand that you yes. have great experience leading a big team, that you were running yes. training in ambiguous environments on that front, that you were assembling or disassembling aircraft machinery. If that doesn't directly translate yes. to that spot, that's fine. Yes. It at least helps me understand that you can navigate ambiguity with the best of them yes. on that side of things. But don't assume I understand that. And don't get me wrong, I think that I think folks who have served in the military bring great experience on that front, but I don't always understand all the language and nuance right. there. And so help me along that journey. 
But what I really like about what you just said is that you invited them to, to educate you. And absolutely. Yes. And I think that that is so crucial for employers to remember because we've seen, so we now have about a thousand breakline alums, more than that at 85 different companies. We have seen a hiring decision turn on a word or on a sentence that someone says. So we have to be really sensitive to the language that we use, both from a preparation standpoint as the candidate, as you said, but also from an interviewer standpoint, as the decision maker, really, are you enabling this person to best tell their story to you? I absolutely agree. And I think the other thing is what actually matters. So I think sometimes people are matching yeah. to similarity and to use the same words that I do to describe something. And so mm-hmm. as a result, we would be a great match. Mm-hmm. And instead, part of your job as an interviewer is to go, what am I missing? What do you mm-hmm. see that I don't see? What Help me understand that experience. And so if I don't understand truly what you're explaining to me, I'm going to go, mm-hmm. Bethany, help me understand what that actually means yes. in practice. Yes. Give me a sense of a day-to-day. Okay, I know this may seem silly, but you wake up, give me a sense of what you're actually doing on that front. Yes. And it is on the interviewer to help push for that yes. level of clarity versus assuming the worst. Yes. And I I so appreciate you giving that example, because if we think about well-connected candidates who come in and interview for a role, they get a lot of preparation and coaching and guidance just through their personal network. They might even know someone at a company like HubSpot who's giving them sort of the inside scoop on how to show up. We as interviewers can give that same advantage to unconventional candidates during the conversation if we just go that extra step and invite them to share more to help us understand. I'm really glad that you shared that. Unconventional candidates, we should be conspiring to help them succeed Mm -hmm. through every stage of the interview process. Mm -hmm. And it should feel that way. So one of Mm -hmm. our concepts at HubSpot that I believe strongly in is, as a good example is, I get asked all the time to do informational interviews. Mm -hmm. And I don't do them anymore because I don't believe that they're in line with my belief on diversity and inclusion. So instead, Mm -hmm. I wrote one up with everything on it and it's on Medium. So everyone Mm -hmm. can read it at any time. And you have the exact same access to information. And the other day, I asked my network for a bunch more questions. I'm going to do the same and I will answer every question in a medium post mm. and make sure that everyone has access. Democratizing access to information that would otherwise yes. only be held by a cultural capital is so yes. important. And so I think that's something that we're trying to lead the way on is actually not even just build it into interviewer training, but just make it available to everyone and mm-hmm. send it to people without them asking. And I think democratizing Mm. access to that information is an important thing that any employer has control over. And we have continued room to improve and grow there, but it's something that we are philosophically trying to really push. Oh my God. I love that so much. And I have one recent example. Stanford Business School wrote a case on Breakline and invited me to come back last week. Thank you. Invited me to come back last week to, to co-teach the case actually for the first time in person in like two years because of COVID. So I, I walked into the classroom and there was one black student in a classroom of 55 students. And what I was listening to the conversation and the conversation was actually about how to navigate around a really tricky business, uh, obstacle. And I was thinking if you are not in this room, you have no access to the gems that are being dropped right now. And so the your point around democratizing access is so well taken. But to be really sensitive about the spaces and who gets to enter those spaces and gets access to that information and make sure we're doing everything in our power to, to open it up 
for all. One of the things we talk a lot about is who gets to be the hero of a story. So who yeah. gets to be the hero? Who gets to speak? Who gets to be in conversation? Who do we applaud? Who do we reward? Who gets the mic for things? And I think those yes. are important conversations, not just to ask at the outset, but regularly. So when times are good, what happens? When times are tough, yes. what happens? And I think asking yourself that question is so important as it relates to true inclusion and belonging. And that's one thing we've been really emphatic in our return to work mm. policies. We are investing really heavily in hybrid. And I resist emphatically when people say the old workforce worked perfectly for mm. whom I always ask. And that's why when you see especially BIPOC women reticent to return you think like why is that surprising to people we have mm -hmm. disappointed women of color at every turn in the modern workforce and we've disappointed people with disabilities and so why are we surprised that they are not like rushing back to work mm -hmm. and by the way often the people who are being asked about the future of work are a bunch of white men who have a power incentive to keep things the way they were before mm -hmm. and so I think just asking why things are the way they are and why they need to be and just thinking about your diversity and inclusion initiative as very much in line with your hybrid work. So one of the things we have said is we're not just going to post a bunch of remote roles externally that are available to be done anywhere. We're going to make sure that all the internal roles will be similarly posted and available mm -hmm. for remote work too. And I think one thing we were really emphatic about is for folks who are veterans, but also for their spouses or partners, the career growth opportunities when you have to move around and it's not in your yes. control are somewhat limited. And so making sure that people and leaders understand the connection between where you choose to post a role, where you choose to host an offsite, who you choose to promote, and your DI and B philosophy. I think sometimes people think those are different things and I view them mm -hmm. as one and the same. Mm-hmm. Katie Burke, we're coming up on our last couple of minutes. Final parting thoughts, especially for our breakline community. Others will be listening in as well, but for the women, the veterans, the people of color that we work with, parting thoughts for them as they think about the next chapter of their careers. Uh, I would just say you're doing great. I think one of the things that we, we have a woman on our team who regularly every once in a while and doesn't do it in a way that's disingenuous, Every once in a while just says, just a reminder, you're doing great. And I think sometimes that can feel very vacant, but like truly take a deep breath and go like, I'm participating in a program that could change my life. And it could, by the way, change future generations' lives. And that doesn't mean that every day or every hour of it is gonna be easy. And my guess is some companies will say no, some programs will say no, something won't work out. But you are already investing in yourself in a way that literally could change your life, could change the future of the workforce. And so I would just say like, I'm cheering for you. And there are millions of people you don't even know who are cheering for you. And so if you're having a bad day, just know that you have a bunch of people in your corner. And if you're having a good day, like go out there and celebrate that because it is not easy to do what you're doing and just wanna know I'm in your corner. Thank you guys so much for joining us for another episode in the Breakline Arena. We hope that you're walking away feeling a little inspired, a little bit moved, and feeling as if you learned something. I tell you what, if you enjoy what you heard today, we only need you to do one of three things. Hit that like button, hit that subscribe, and if it really touched your spirit, go on review and rate this episode. It would mean a lot to us. It helps us get the word out there. It helps us continue to share this great content. Mm -hmm. And most importantly, we just love to hear what, you, what you'd have to say about some of the content that we're putting out there. So 
please join us again here in the Breakline Arena. Once again, my name is Kenny Vaughn, and I am signing out from the Breakline HQ with my partner in crime. Sophia Bodwin, we will see you guys next week.